KPCW News. Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. Let's find out what's in store for our weather this weekend. On the phone, I have Thomas Geeboy with ABC4. Morning, Thomas. And good morning and happy Friday to you. We're going to close out the work week with some pretty nice weather across the Wasatch back. And in fact, it's going to be pretty seasonal as we go through today. The average high today in Park City is 37 and we'll see a daytime high coming at 38 degrees. And we'll be checking in with mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies. And in the Heber Valley, we'll likely see a daytime high right around 40 degrees. Should be a beautiful day if you want to spend some time outside. And for anybody heading up to the mountains to enjoy all the fresh snow that we've seen so far this week, it should be a pretty nice bluebird day. Then as we move into tonight, we'll check in with partly cloudy skies the overnight low falling to 21 degrees in park city and we could drop into the teens the upper teens down in the heber valley and then as we go through the weekend we'll have high pressure keeping our weather quiet for the most part and with where winds out of the southwest it's going to trend a little bit warmer and i'm thinking by sunday we could have kind of that early-ish spring feel because tomorrow we'll see low to mid 40s and then by sunday we'll likely see a daytime high in the mid 40s even in park city with that daytime high coming in at 46 degrees with overnight lows continuing mainly in the 20s through the weekend. So if you want to spend some time outside, this weekend looks like it's going to be a great weekend to do so. But we'll be coming, we'll be crashing back down to reality as we move into early next week as our next winter storm system looks set to move in. On Monday, we'll be looking at an 80% chance for showers. And with the daytime high climbing back into the low 40s in Park City on Monday, there is a chance that we could start with rain. However, when this system works its way through, it's going to send in a cold front pretty quickly and the temperatures will drop fairly quickly. We'll drop to 20 degrees on Monday night and we could be talking about times of heavy snow and snow is going to remain likely through our Tuesday with a daytime high only coming in at 27 degrees. So the difference between Sunday and Tuesday when it comes to daytime highs, roughly 20 degrees and the overnight low by Tuesday night will drop to around 10 degrees as we hold on to a chance for some snow showers. Wednesday and Thursday look to be a little bit on the quieter side of things, but we won't be able to eliminate the chance for snow showers as it looks like there's going to be some residual moisture and energy working its way through. Temperatures will warm up fairly quickly, though, after our system works its way through on Tuesday. We'll be back in the mid-30s on Wednesday and could be back to around 40 degrees on Thursday. Still a little bit too early to say just how much snow the system on Monday, Monday and Tuesday is going to bring to us. But all indications are showing that most mountains could probably pick up at least a half a foot of snow with maybe several inches being a possibility for Park City. And this is going to be a much more traditional storm where it's coming in from the northwest compared to what we've gotten used to with our atmospheric rivers coming in out of the southwest. So kind of that early-ish spring feeling as we go through the weekend. Then we have that kind of taste of winter early next week. And then we'll see temperatures warming back to around 40 degrees by next Thursday, Roger. With that snow coming in from the north, Thomas, are we, is it likely to be the, the heavy, wet stuff given the sort of well, temperatures we're looking at? Well, it could start off as that. So it could start off as that heavy, dense, wet snow, especially with it being around 40 degrees on Monday in Park City. But when that colder air works its way through, so what could start as that heavy, dense, wet snow could end up as powder, especially on Tuesday. If we're able to hold on to those snow showers through most of the day, then that we might be able to kind of get that base layer with that heavy, dense snow and maybe be able to put some fresh powder on top of that. Well, that's what we can hope for. Thank you, Thomas. You're welcome. Well, there's been a lot of snow this week. Let's find out what all that snow means for the backcountry. On the phone, I have Greg with the Utah Avalanche Center. Hi, Greg. Hey there. Good morning. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to a beautiful weekend ahead and uh, what appears to be a nice storm early this coming week. Um, for today, you know, we mostly have a moderate avalanche danger, uh, although on mid and upper elevation slopes facing east and southeast we have a considerable danger what happened was uh, around february uh, february 14th so we're calling it our valentine's day layer crust um we had a uh, some a crust of snow with some facets on top of that crust 
and then it got it preserved underneath the, um, several storms we've had since Valentine's Day. And we can, we're continuing to get avalanching on this layer. Um, there was a really large avalanche reported from the Proverary Mountains in American Fork Canyon yesterday. We don't have many details of this, but could be 1,500 feet wide and two, two feet deep. So really big avalanche, and it's possible it failed on that layer. So that's something that's really grabbing my attention today. Other than that, though, we generally have a moderate danger um, for avalanches and, and two primary problems. One, uh, warming temperatures today. It's not going to get too warm, but um, it's, been, it's been stormy the past week, so uh, the, the snow is going to warm up today, and we're going to see some loose wet avalanches as the day warms. Uh, and then also on upper elevation northerly slopes, there's some wind-drifted snow, and you could get some avalanches to fail on that, although that's less likely. So generally moderate danger uh, at, on, on um, most slopes, although you really want to pay attention to those um, southeast and east aspects at the mid and upper elevations where we do have that persistent weak layer. And uh, I think through the weekend, warming temperatures, we're going to be continuing to have a problem with, um, with wet avalanches through the weekend, so definitely pay attention to that. And yeah, you know, that's, that's it. I just that big avalanche in uh, Mary Ellen Gelch in American Fork Canyon really got my attention. So uh, I, I'm simply avoiding the problem by I'm, n I'm, not, I'm staying off of south facing slopes and I'm just turning to northerly facing slopes. The, the snow is far superior and you don't have that avalanche problem. Sounds like a wise chart path to chart. Thanks, Greg. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye bye. This is Roger Goldman. You're listening to the KPCW Local News Hour. Coming up, I'll be speaking with Kendra Wyckoff. She's the executive director of Peace House. Then we'll be speaking with Tristan Adler and Jen Schumacher about tonight's gallery stroll. We're going to finish our hour by speaking with Heber City Councilman Scott Phillips about some of the latest developments in Heber. First, let's do a little bit of local news. Two Park City Planning Commissioners objected to the approval of tech billionaire Matthew Prince's home at a meeting on Wednesday. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports. The commission was tasked with ratifying its action last week when officials narrowly approved the Prince's home plans. During the procedural vote Wednesday, two members of the Park City Planning Commission voiced opposition to the approval process for the project. It was put on a fast track last month when lawyers for Prince requested final action from the city, which pushes the commission to vote within 45 days. Commissioner Laura Susser, an attorney who has served on the planning board since 2016, implied the home plans didn't receive enough scrutiny. I, I don't believe the, um, the commission properly analyzed and, and, and went through the appropriate process in, in uh, processing this application. And um, I don't think the, um, the discussion last week thoroughly analyzed the application. That was echoed by fellow commissioner and developer Henry Sig. For me, there just wasn't enough um, empirical data. There was too many conflicting statements by some of the important um, review bodies and that the format that was presented at the last meeting was unfamiliar. And so on that basis, I object. Susser specifically objected to not including the home's unfinished space when calculating the building's height and footprint. We should be contemplating this application as if it included that unfinished floor in the height. The building's 53 feet, whether it's finished or unfinished. Two of the home's four and a half stories are below grade and considered basement levels. 
The building's interior height does not comply with the city's land management code, which measures from the lowest finished floor. However, the Prince property is in the Sweeney Master Plan development. Limits on interior height were enacted after the development was approved. The commission added a condition Wednesday that requires the princes to get a permit before developing the unfinished space. A majority allowed amendments to the property's rules, more formally known as plat notes, allowing the Sweeney MPD to supersede the zoning regulated by code. The commission also granted amendments allowing underground space and areas with landscaping or a deck to be excluded from footprint calculations. The planning department determined in a January 24th staff report that the actual footprint of the home is approximately 11,300 square feet under methodology and city code. The approved amendments allow the home's footprint to be measured at 3,500 square feet, excluding the underground parking area and accessory buildings. Garages normally have to be included in the footprint, but because the princes define it as a parking area without a door, the 4,700 square feet are not included. Commissioner Bill Johnson also voted against the ratification Wednesday. Commission Chair Sarah Hall stepped in again to break the tie in favor of approval. The home still has to go through a historic design review before a building permit can be issued. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. Since 1995, Peace House has been dedicated to ending family violence and abuse through education, outreach, support services, and safe housings. While many domestic violence shelters keep their locations secret, Peace House has taken a different approach, one that was recently profiled in a New York Times opinion piece. Here to talk about that and some other upcoming events is Executive Director Kendra Wyckoff. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Roger. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the big picture that, that's sort of fleshed out in the Times piece. Why have domestic violence shelters traditionally sought to hide their locations? Well, um, primarily that's related to safety. Oftentimes when victims of domestic violence are fleeing an abusive home, um, that's when we see an escalation in violence occur. It actually is one of the most dangerous times for a victim of domestic violence because their abusive partner uh, senses a loss of control in the relationship. So historically, um, domestic violence shelters really began as a grassroots effort, um, mostly by women, you know, back in the 70s. And they were homes in the community where individuals were opening up their homes for victims and their children so that they could be safe, leave the abusive home. With time, and we began to professionalize this um, particular social service, we saw that those homes um, continued to exist in communities or facilities. But again, because of safety and security reasons, they were often undisclosed so that abusive partners would not be able to find the family. And was the Peace House uh, here originally in an undisclosed location, or has it always been sort of known? Yeah, it was undisclosed um, originally. That was the concept when the facility was built. You know, it was here on Marsac Drive, kind of hidden right in homes that look very similar to it. Uh, but what we know and learned here even locally is that, you know, when you have a facility in a community for 20-plus years, people begin to learn the location. And a home, um, well, being a wonderful space for people to flee to and have the supports that they need, didn't necessarily have all of the safety and security measures that some of our more um, innovative facilities have now. 
And, and one of the other things that was mentioned in the article was that by having the, these homes in sort of secret and undisclosed locations, it enhanced the sort of cutoff and isolation associated with with a shelter. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're in an undisclosed facility, there are a lot of guidelines um, that individuals who have come in to services follow. You can't really have friends or family know where you're at. You can't share the location. You're isolated in that space. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, you're not able to maybe access some of the other resources that you need to get connected to, to increase your safety and stability. And the Peace House Community Campus, the philosophy behind that was really creating a community hub for victims of domestic violence that includes that residential aspect where people can come and receive the support that they need when they're immediately fleeing violence, but also you have all the wraparound supports that you need. Everything from case management to counseling to legal advocacy. Your family can know where you're at. Um, you can lean in on the supports that maybe you have already in the community, whether that's folks that you go to church with, friends and family members, or your employer. And of course, the flip side of that and the original concern was one of security. If these places are known, the abuser obviously has a pretty good guess as to where to come if, he's look, if he or she is looking for trouble. How, how have you controlled the security aspects on the other side? Right. So the facility was really well designed. There was an in, incredible amount of research done around what it might look like to have a disclosed location. And everything from the physical facility and how it was designed to the security systems are all there meant to increase safety for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault that are residing on our campus and also the safety of our employees and the volunteers. So um, we work really closely with our local law enforcement agencies as well. It's really a coupling together of some of those innovative, creative ways that we can address security while having emergency management protocols in place. We have a secure facility. So in order to access the building, um, it requires that you have permission to do so. And without going into details that would jeopardize that security, can you talk? Can you just share a little bit more about the nature of the kinds of protections that you have? Right. Well, we have multiple levels of security in the building. Um, you know, again, it was designed so that we can control access to certain parts of the building, and certainly the most vulnerable parts of the building are where some of our most vulnerable folks are staying. So that is, you know, just again, really thoughtful design, um, working really closely with the Park City Police Department. Anytime that we have concerns about safety risks for somebody. We're working with Park City PD. We're working with Summit County Sheriff's Office. Um, we have protocols in place where we have, you know, increased security on campus. Um, we love those criminal uh, justice partners. Sometimes they just spend time sitting in our parking lot working on police reports. And that in itself can be an incredible deterrent if somebody has um, some intentions that may be bad. And, and I assume that from time to time there have been manifestations of of people trying to come into the facility that probably shouldn't, that clearly should not. Yes, um, of course, you know, we've had a few incidences where an abusive partner may show up. Um, we have, again, very strong protocols, and we don't engage with folks if we're concerned about a safety risk. So we immediately call law enforcement. I can tell you probably 98% of the time when we've had folks that we could not identify on our campus, it's been people lost in the community. <laughs> it's been folks who have parked in our parking lot thinking they were going to... <laughs> yep, thinking they're going to the hospital or even thinking this is a great place to park. I'm going to, you know, jump up on the trails behind the building here. So um, fortunately, you know, 
all of our staff are trained on our emergency management. We all have a um, expectation that we are paying attention to the safety of the campus. And another great benefit of where we're located in that Quinns Junction area is that we're part of an emergency management group with all those community partners. So really the intention with this facility is that we have a community of support looking out for this campus, looking out for survivors. And that was really strong messaging when we were in the process of building this facility. We wanted the community to understand, but also for survivors to understand. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of your residence. How long, how many residents do you typically have in living in the facility and how long does a residence typically stay? Right, well we have two housing programs on our campus. One is emergency shelter and the intention there is to have that immediate safe place for folks who are fleeing their home anytime, you know, day or night, any day of the year, holidays, we are open 24 seven. Our lights never turn off at Peace House. And individuals stay there anywhere between about 30, 60, 90 days, depending upon their circumstances. Our goal there is to work on increasing safety and stabilization. And they have all of the wraparound supports on campus that they need. So a case manager, we have housing specialists, we have legal advocates that can help with protective orders. We have counselors that can provide crisis counseling. Then we also offer transitional housing. Um, we have 12 units of transitional housing and they go from one to three bedroom units to meet the needs of families. And that's a longer term stay. Again, the intention is to really give people the time that they need to rebuild their lives. You can imagine if you just pick up and walk out the door from your home with very little in your children, you are in a space of crisis trying to navigate what the next steps are going to be. An emergency shelter is just meant to be that access point, but transitional housing allows for survivors to have the time that they need to get employment, manage childcare, get legal protections in place, rebuild their life so that when they are ready, they can reintegrate back into the community with a permanent housing option. And are you, are you typically full? I mean, do you have enough? We are. And every night at Peace House, we have anywhere between about 40 and 50 people living on our campus between those two residential programs. Okay. Um, I understand that there's a movie coming out. Yes, yeah, so we're really excited. We really want to invite the community to come out. We have a movie screening on March 7th, and um, that movie features Lieutenant, uh, retired Lieutenant Mark Wynn. And Mark is a childhood survivor of domestic violence. He grew up in a home with a very violent father, and he really uh, transformed that experience into his profession as a law enforcement officer where he led one of the largest domestic violence investigation units in Nashville, Tennessee. And so his personal experience, not only as a childhood survivor, but also as a law enforcement officer, has um, really helped him understand the dynamics and how we can be responding to victims of domestic violence in our communities in improved ways. So he has a film um, that is a documentary. It's about a 40-minute film, and it's called Where um, I Learned Not to Sleep. And we will have a panel discussion following that with some folks from our own criminal justice community. So we'll have a representative from Park City PD, the Children's Justice Center, and then a representative from Peace House, Catherine Aguilera, our associate director, to talk about what that impact is. Um, the nice bridge that we have in March for that movie is that Mark is actually going to be our keynote speaker at our luncheon fundraiser at Promontory on March 21st as well. And we're really excited to 
showcase this documentary, have some really important conversations about the impact of domestic violence on children, mm -hmm. and to hear firsthand from Mark about his experience and how he used that to transform investigations around these types of crimes as a law enforcement officer. So let's stop there and make sure our audience understands that they want to see the film. Uh, is, is, is that a fundraiser as well? And once again, when is that? Screening? The film is free, and that's at the Santee Auditorium on, on March 7th, okay. and it will begin at 7 p.m., and that is about a 40-minute movie screening with a panel that will follow, probably about 40-minute panel. And the luncheon. Uh, that is a fundraising luncheon. The, Give yes. us the details about that. The luncheon is a fundraising luncheon that is on March 21st. That's going to be at Promontory at the Double Deer Club. We may have a few tickets left, so if you're interested, you can go to our website or you can reach out to Sally Tauber and email her at sally at peacehouse.org. Okay. Uh, the legislature is still in session for a little bit longer. Was there anything in this year's legislative session that affected or could have affected your mission? Yeah, absolutely. Every session there is always <laughs> a bill or two or ten, you know, that come up um, on our radar. Peace House is really involved in public policy initiatives. We work with the two state coalitions, one that's a domestic violence-focused coalition and one that's a sexual assault coalition. And we advocate at the Hill. So we spent a couple of days up there in early February meeting with all of our legislators to talk with them. There's a couple of bills that I just want to share with our community. One that's really important is House Bill 272. This is a child custody bill. Um, and it's also be co being called OM bill. Ohm was murdered by his father last year in Salt Lake City. He was 16 years old. Um, there was an extensive child custody case where his mother, Leah Moses, was advocating for some protections. Um, that did not happen, and the most tragic and worst outcome that could possibly happen, Ohm was murdered by his father. She's continuing her advocacy work, and this bill actually strengthens the child custody response in cases where there's a presence of domestic abuse. So, this has passed the House and the Senate committee. It will be um, heard on the Senate floor for a vote, so we're hoping that it will pass there and that it will go to the governor's office and be signed because this will be really meaningful legislation to support those child custody cases. These are civil cases, and the complication is, is oftentimes in civil court, victims of domestic violence, when they go into that courtroom, um, the domestic abuse piece is not always seen as high risk and an issue for the kids. And we know, based on research, that it is. And so we're really advocating that our civil system respond in a much more intentional way around these cases and ensure that there's more safety for kids. Okay. That was, uh, I think you mentioned there were two bills. Is there another one you want to touch on? Yeah, there is also another bill that's going to be heard today in committee, and this is House Bill 0441. Um, we actually, as advocates, are opposing it in its current form, and that is... Um, a bill that addresses academic violations. And you might be saying, well, what does that mean for domestic violence and sexual assault victims? But this bill um, outlines a process when there is an academic violation that includes a Title IX violation, and that covers sexual assault allegations. And what this particular bill does is it's treating sexual assault cases that happen on college campuses as if they're academic violations. So they're putting them through this process where it makes it more complicated for survivors to report. Um, it also requires an arduous cross-examination of the victim of sexual assault, which can result in re-traumatizing them and really is going to have a chilling effect on sexual assault survivors on our college campuses making reports. And we know that sexual assault is a problem on the college campuses across this country and in our state.
Okay. Anything else you want to touch on before we go, Kendra? Well, I just say thank you so much. We are uh, really appreciate having the opportunity to come and talk to the community, but also thank you to the community for their ongoing support. We are seeing increased needs at Peace House. Last year, we had a 41% increase in the number of people reaching out and engaging in all the services we have on our campus. We need your support. It is critical. We provide life-saving and life-changing services. And I encourage you, if you or someone you know um, is experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault victimization, please call our toll-free hotline at 1-800-647-9161. Thank you. Thank you, Kendra. We'll be right back after this. Well, it's the last Friday of the month, and what does that mean? It means it's time for the monthly gallery stroll. Here to talk about it are Jen Schumacher and Tristan Adler. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Well, before we get down into the the, the chocolatey muck that's featured in this month's this month's gallery stroll. For those who aren't familiar with it, tell us a little bit about what is the gallery stroll and who sponsors it, Jen? Well, the gallery stroll is generously sponsored by the Park City Restaurant Association grant, among other things. Um, the association is comprised of 15 members, and we all pay a yearly fee, so that helps too. So we get money from de several different avenues. Um, the stroll happens the last Friday of every month, year-round, so 12 times a year from 6 to 9. Okay. Um, and this month is a special one, as, as I mentioned. This is one especially for chocolate lovers. Uh, Tristan, have you done anything like this before? You know, nothing specifically like this. This is a cool opportunity to partner. A lot of these are, are local businesses um, that we've been able to partner with uh, that are making some really interesting stuff. Okay. So... Excuse me. So what does it mean? It means that um, in addition to sort of t typically on the gallery stroll, you go from gallery to gallery. Sometimes there'll be some music. Sometimes there'll be some wine. But this year, this time, we're going to get chocolate. And talk a little bit about, you know, so some, of, some of the chocolatiers that are going to be featured and, and where they might be. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll give you a little rundown of the list here. Um, so at Create PC, uh, they'll be partnering with Lococo. Uh, David K. Beavis Fine Art, that's the gallery that I direct. We're partnering with Cash Toffee Collection. Gallery Mar will be with Park City Desserts. JG Art Gallery and Events at The Prospect will be with Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. Meyer Gallery will be partnered with Taste 117. Montgomery Lee Fine Art will be with Ritual Chocolate. Mountain Trails Gallery will be partnered with Park City Toffee. Relevant Galleries will partner with Shea Nibs. Summit Gallery will partner with The Chocolate Palette. Susan Schwartz Studios will partner with Fine Co. And Trove Gallery will be partnered with the pastry chef from the River Horse restaurant that will be doing a chocolate and olive oil pairing. I'm, I'm sitting here processing the, the notion of chocolate and olive oil. It, 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 it sounds like it might be interesting, but it's not something I can say I've ever experienced before. I can weigh in on that. It's <laughs> unbelievable. So uh, Ulia Greek Olive Oil is a, a couple here in Park City that imports the olives from Kalamata from his family's um, Oh, sorry, it's early for me. From his family's olive trees in Kalamata, Greece. So they provide the olive oil, and then the pastry chef puts them with cakes and cookies and chocolates, and it's unbelievably moist and rich and decadent. So you don't want to miss that. Well, something tells me that since I believe that's at the Trove Gallery, that you may have had to do some intensively difficult research in order to of prepare for course, this event. Of course, it's a year-round thing. By sampling this, stuff. this event. And okay, so th that'll be at your gallery. Uh, what what kind of exhibits do you have at your gallery tonight? Well, uh, Trove Gallery, we've got Wendy Chittister. She's a local artist that we've carried for over 20 years. She's from uh, Salt Lake City. 
Uh, she does realistic still lifes, a lot of um, vintage items. So we did sports uh, theme this year. We've got skates, ice skates, roller skates, ski boots, badminton, all sorts of fun old relics that she likes to paint. Uh, Mountain Trails has another local artist, Simon Weiniger, and they uh, have, he does lots of, um, I'm sorry, lots of landscapes. Mm -hmm. uh, Create PC with its new location on Kearns Boulevard is featuring about 40 uh, local artists and the chocolate as well. Brett Webster also has a new image that he's promoting. It's a 10 foot wide image that's just really stunning and uh, needs to be seen in person. And finally, Meyer Gallery will be hosting um, beloved Utah artist Jeffrey Pugh, who also does beautiful landscapes with uh, knife, palette knife work. Tristan, what have you got coming up? Yeah, so the David K. Beavis Gallery, we've just hung a new image from David's most recent visit to Greenland. So this is a phenomenal, huge image, eight feet wide, uh, of a red sailboat sailing amongst these towering icebergs. A really beautiful image that you'd have to see to believe. So I have to ask, what are the logistics, if somebody buys an eight-foot image, what are the logistics of getting something like that mounted and delivered? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that, that we would produce out of our studios would be custom packaged, crated, and then delivered by specialty carrier. So all of our shipping is done by carriers that are well-versed in shipping fine art, um, and so they're specially insured, uh, white glove delivery, all of the above to make sure that that the piece goes from our studios to the home uh, and then if they're local we'll actually help you install the piece um, if you're not local we'll do our best to to find a local installer to help you so so jen it's it's you know the end of the end of february ski season we're seeing the beginning of the end talk to us about how uh, this season has been for the, the galleries in town it's interesting it's been in and out i think uh, december is always good with the families on vacation, but the snow was a little light. Um, then, of course, we had Sundance that, uh, I don't know, it, it's good and bad for the galleries. It just depends if people can get to the gallery or if you're open for business that week. Um, this new snow has been great. Of course, this week is good with all the uh, kids being out of school. So things are great. It looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend, and there's more snow on the horizon. So, you know, we're really only halfway through our season. So. Things are looking up and we're all hanging in there. I think we have a really strong art showing in Park City, especially on Main Street, when you can, the walkability is just incredible. And, and that does bring up my next question, which is if people wanted to get a sense of how you stroll, um, are, is there a map on the website? And you know, what are the sort of transportation and logistics option to participate in the stroll? Absolutely. So every year, the Gallery Association puts together a, a map of all of the, the participants in the Gallery Association. And that's available at any of the, the association galleries. So you can pick that up um, and be able to follow all of the Gallery Association galleries uh, from there. And then we do have transportation, public transportation, that will take you over to the Kearns area um, if you want to see, for example, Create PC that, that's off Main Street. Okay. And uh, if you just wanted to, to park and walk, I assume the, the China Bridge parking is is, is available, although it's, it's a little pricey. China Bridge parking is available, um, and that's probably the best place right. to park if you want to walk Main Street. Okay. And you can start anywhere. You know, it's, it's an open, free to the public, six to nine. So uh, also check out the website, Park City Gallery Association website and our social media. The map is on the website as well as the paper maps that you can okay. pick up. Jen, Tristan, thanks for spending time with us. Anything you want to add before we go? 
I hope you all come out and see us tonight. Okay. Yeah, thank you. It, it should be a sweet night. Thanks for spending thank time you. with us. We'll be right back after this. Park City's Egyptian Theater has confirmed that it will host the London-based play Gwyneth Goes Skiing. KPCW's Kristen Weller reports the show is based on local events. The Egyptian Theater is partnering with Pleasance Theater Trust of London to host the play for two weeks. It's about the ski collision and subsequent court case between actress Gwyneth Paltrow and Utah optometrist Terry Sanderson. The ski crash happened in 2016 on Deer Valley Resort's Bandana Run, a beginner slope. 76-year-old Sanderson originally sued Paltrow in 2019 for $3.1 million, accusing her of negligence and crashing into him from behind. The suit was later amended to seek $300,000 in damages. Paltrow countersued to receive a symbolic $1 in damages. In March of 2023, the Summit County jury found Sanderson was 100% at fault in the crash. The play Gwyneth Goes Skiing highlights the now infamous trial weaving a silly story of justice and betrayal where the audience is the jury. Linus Karp will star as Paltrow and Joseph Martin will play Sanderson. It will be a lip-sync performance featuring fictional dialogue and some verbatim lines from court transcripts. The play will also feature vocals from two special guests. Golden Globe and Emmy Award winner Glee star Darren Criss is the singing voice of Sanderson. Kat Cohen, who is an Edinburgh Fringe Comedy Award winner, is the singing voice of Paltrow. Trixie Mattel from RuPaul's Drag Race will also feature as Paltrow's mom, Blythe Danner, in a special video cameo. The play will run from Thursday, May 16th to Sunday, May 26th. All proceeds will support the Egyptians' free U-Theater program. Christine Weller, KPCW News. Commuters say they are watching potholes grow on Wasatch Back Roads as the winter wears on. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports what to do if those potholes cause you some damage. There may be some good news for drivers who fall prey to potholes. The Utah Department of Transportation could cover some of the damage cost. But that's only if the incident happened on a road maintained by the state and if the driver can prove UDOT was negligent by not patching the road in a timely manner. There's a map of state roads in this report online at kpcw.org. As for the other condition, UDOT says most drivers aren't able to prove negligence. Still, it invites drivers to fill out an online claim form if they believe they qualify. For UDOT to be proven negligent, first it needs to be made aware of the pothole. Drivers can do that by reporting holes online or through UDOT's Click and Fix app. But UDOT Region 2 spokesperson Kyler Sharp says there's not a concrete timeline for every single repair. Typically when our crews get notified about a pothole, they, they, they do the very best they can to make sure that crews get out there and, and, and try to fix them as soon as possible, right? Um, like if you, if you think about in the winter months, like we get... We get more potholes more often than not because of the, the ice that gets in there from the snowpack and kind of expands. So some potholes are simply maintained until the summer when crews can make permanent repairs. Others are maintained ahead of large projects like road replacements. Potholes have already caused severe problems for local drivers this winter. Tuesday morning, a car headed east past Jeremy Ranch on Interstate 80 hit a pothole and flipped over the median into the westbound lanes. According to Utah Highway Patrol Sergeant Cameron Roden, speed may have been a factor too. Roden says no one was seriously injured. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. The Park City Library is offering a new initiative called Sages and Seekers, the first library in the country to do so. KPCW's Leslie Thatcher has more about the eight-week program. Sage and Seekers is a program that started in 2010 in California and has spread across the country, mostly in schools and senior centers. Park City Youth Services Librarian Assistant Brittany Heck says a library patron who is a friend of the program's founder suggested the local library look into it. Heck found it intriguing. A program that allows 
people of an older age, so 60 up, and teenagers to come together in a way that helps get rid of stereotypes and build empathy between these generations. The program has been about a year in the making. She says the library received a state grant to pay for the licensing fees while finding the staff available to implement it. She believes it aligns well with the library's mission and strategic plan of getting more intergenerational programming and lifelong learning through the library. The weekly program pairs the older sages with the younger seekers. They'll meet every Monday afternoon at the library from April 1st to May 20th from 3 to 5 p.m. Sages have a lot to offer. They've got a lot of life experience and different perspectives to provide. And our seekers get paired with them to meet and chat with them in this eight-week-long program. And ultimately creating what's called a tribute that the seeker presents within the whole group to their sage as to what they learned from them and what they hope to accomplish having heard from their sage. Hecht has reached out to the local senior center as well as Park City High School's National Honor Society. Team participants would be able to use their time in the program for any required volunteer hours. She expects the program will offer a lot for both seekers and the sages. My expectation is that in bringing these two generations together that it will help to unify our community in a way that ought to stem from a library. It brings people together, they have conversations, and they learn from one another. And I hope that that empowers folks after the program in both ages. Recruitment ends March 21st. You can find the link to register and more information about the program, as well as a short video online at kpcw.org. Leslie Thatcher, KPCW News. Joining us now by phone is Heber City Councilman Scott Phillips. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Scott, we want to sort of give our listeners an update about some of the significant things that are going on in Heber City. And I know among the major issues facing the town is the proposed bypass. Can you just set the stage a little bit and t talk to us about what the bypass would do before we get down to some of the details of what's going on? Uh, sure, yeah. The, by the bypass road has been talked about for probably more <laughs> than 30 years. Uh, you know, bypass west of town, reclaiming our main street, um, instead of it being a, a national highway, being uh, just the main street again, so Highway 40 being rerouted around Heber um, to the west and reconnecting somewhere to the north of town um, and continuing up to Park City. And as the town has developed, uh, that the main street is obviously clogged with some, you know, Semi, se semis and large sort of transit vehicles that don't need to be there. So I, I take it this has become an increasing need as the traffic has become more and more dense. Uh, that's, that's true. In the last five years, it's become evident that something has to happen. A lot of trucks coming from the basin with oil, and I've heard as of last week that the basin is increasing their oil production by about 30%. So that means 30% more trucks coming through Heber. The only way to transport that oil to Salt Lake is directly through Heber. And then through you know Park City on I-80, so um, we'd like to reroute those trucks. But I think more of a concern is when um, Highway 189 is finished in four lanes, which they're starting to do this summer from Provo, that we're going to get a lot of traffic um, coming from Provo uh, up to I-80 that will pass through Heber because they won't want to go through Salt Lake anymore. They'll just come up through the canyon and then then through Heber. Okay, so uh, the need is pretty clear, and as you say, it's been talked about forever. Uh, it's, it's coming closer to reality. What are the big issues surrounding the selection of a route? Well, the selection of the route, I, you know, I, there's a lot of emotion involved. 
because we do have the north fields in Heber that has up to now relatively stayed open space. Um, there was a referendum some time ago as, as the county had tried to increase the density in the north fields to five or one uh, unit for five acres instead of one unit for 20, which is what it is now. Uh, that referendum was supported overwhelmingly by the voters to keep the north fields open space. Uh, but I think we can do both. And I'm, I'm just speaking for myself and not for anyone else on, on this subject. But I, I really want to wait and see what UDOT comes up with as suggestions for the best possible route. Um, the reason for that is to take the emotion out of the decision so that we make a good decision. Emotions don't always make the best decisions. And, and, and help our listeners understand a little bit about what the tension is. I know that there's some disagreement between the city and the county about a route. W what is the tension point? Uh, obviously, if you're going to go through the, the North Fields, uh, you, have to, you, have to find, you have to find a route where the road can go. Yeah, and I think the main tension point is if, if the road goes through the North Fields, is it going to be developable at that point? Are we going to increase density and develop around the road and i i don't think anyone has desire to do that i think if that's the suggested route that we really need to keep that as open space um and not allow for development around the road and ha has the process of sort of acquiring conservation easements begun and how is that affected by by the proposed routes well most recently there's a proposal to do some conservation easements from the open lands board um, a landowner has agreed to um, sell the development rights of their property and, and make a conservation easement we're a little bit hesitant to move forward on that just because those properties are in the way of two or three different of the five routes that have been you know that have been put forward by UDOT as potential routes uh, we really want to work together we don't want to make this harder than it needs to be um, so we do want to make sure that we preserve the open space, but we don't want to put in place a conservation easement that makes it more difficult for UDOT uh, in the future or blocks a potential route. Um, that's where we are right now. And, and is, is a solution to that as simple as simply writing a conservation easement that allows, you know, allows the road to go through if that's where UDOT happens to choose? I think so. Mm -hmm. you know, but the landowner would have to agree to that and the... You know, the parties involved would have to agree to that type of language being being put into the conservation easement to make it easier to to build a road if that's where it's deemed to go. And can you share with us your, your perspective on how long you think this process is going to take and when we're actually going to see, you know, road construction equipment in the ground in, in around Heber? How long do you think it'll be? I think we will pr probably have... Um, the recommended route from UDOT sometime this year. I'm hoping that's that's the case. From that point, it's probably seven to ten years before the road is actually constructed. And I'd, I'd like to see the, that happen before the Olympics. I think this is going to be crucial for um, the viability of Soldier Hollow as, a, yeah, really. as an Olympic venue with traffic and, and those concerns. But also, you know, one of our main interests as a city in the rerouting of Highway 40 is to create more of a destination downtown here in Heber. I mean, right now it's, uh, you know, a lot of fast food restaurants. There's a couple small businesses, but we, we want to have outdoor dining and 
shopping and places for people to actually come into Heber um, make it good for the residents, but also for the visitors to the valley. Yeah, I, I guess I can see the perspective that uh, large semi, large, large, large trucks spewing diesel do not sort of create an optimum environment for outdoor dining, do they? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, just standing on just standing on the Heber sidewalk trying to talk to anybody is extremely difficult because of the noise. But we are in our you know current planning. We have proposed a new alleyway between 200 South and um, Center Street that would go from the city park to the city offices, uh, an alleyway at about 50 West. Mm -hmm. And this would just be an, a walking alleyway with outdoor dining and shopping and more of a, a destination type area to come to. And obviously that takes a lot of development and that'll be a lot of years too, but we are making all the steps to uh, provide the zoning and make it possible for people to make those investments. And obviously, the Heber area continues to experience substantial growth, which is a, a major challenge for city government to sort of handle. The Jordanelle Ridge development received preliminary approval. Can you share with the audience a little bit about that development? How many homes will it be, and uh, where will it be? Which which development, sorry? Jordanelle Ridge. Oh, Jordanelle Ridge. Well, in in total, on that side of town, there's about seven thousand entitled units. To be constructed. Um, again, this is a major issue with the road because Highway 40 is, is currently the main road supplying that area. Um, there's four no, four new stoplights that will be put into Highway 40 between Heber and River Road. Uh, the first of those is going to be at the new Smith's Marketplace that's being mm -hmm. constructed now. Uh, three more are going to be put in, and I believe the plan is to drop that speed limit uh, from 55 to 35 the whole way to River Road. Uh, so those units have been approved. There's many that have already been constructed or are being constructed now. If you come into Heber, the construction there on that uh, northeast side of town yes. is, is happening. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a good word for it, yes. But it will be an amenity. I mean, it, these are, we need homes. People want to live here in this valley and um, we need homes to provide for that. Uh, we're building a new high school right now. We'll need, and, that, and part of that's projections of all these new homes coming in. So we'll need students to fill the high school, and we'll need teachers to teach in the high school, and it all plays together. But, yeah, the, the growth in construction will continue. And you know, it really does put a fine point on the need for a bypass because you're going to have, uh, a, you know, you had several thousand homes. You're clearly going to have a lot of increased traffic on 40, as you say, that you have to have the addition of stoplights. So uh, un unless there's some traffic mitigation, it could, it could get really, really backed up, I assume. It could be bad. I mean, even now, uh, there's some Saturday or some days heading out of town towards Park City where it's five or six stoplights you wait there at River Road, mm -hmm. um, 35, 45 minutes just to get out of the valley. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to learn, too, from Park City's mistakes as far as working with UDOT, <laughs> with the... Uh, with Kearns Boulevard, I mean, we, we don't want that scenario here. We want to be ready when UDOT comes with their proposal. Uh, we want to have more of a unified message. Um, we're having meetings now to that effect where we're working together with the school district, the county, Midway City, to have a plan on our, our part. You know, say, what can we do to help make this a good thing? Scott, can you give us an update on the Envision 2050 plan to revitalize downtown? We talked about the alley. What, what else is in the works for this coming construction season? 
Um, not much right now. Well, we are building new band shell. Mm-hmm. So I, we I, have we have our concerts in the park in Heber uh, every summer, every Thursday evening. We're this summer going to build a new band shell, close down 200 uh, south between Main Street and 100 West. Um, the band shell is going to be built kind of in the middle of that road, a little bit to the south side of that road, so there's still a traffic lane through there. But it's the beginning of a plaza, which will be the the bookend of that new alleyway. And then the other bookend of the alleyway is going to be City Hall. So that does start this spring. And just what, 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 I'm stammering, I'm sorry. The Envision 2050 plan, what is that? What's the purpose of it? Well, it's just a guiding document into how we make decisions for zoning and where we're looking to be in 2050 as a city. Mm-hmm. And that, that, then, that then guides our decision process and our weekly meetings. And, and I take it that, that there will be sort of additional ongoing projects in years to come, but that's all we got sort of teed up for this summer. Yeah, that's all we have teed up for this summer. There will be definitely additional projects. Uh, but there, then there's also opportunity for private developers uh, to come into that downtown Heber core, um, start buying properties and redeveloping them for the new codes and, and rules that we've set in place to reach that potential that we have in 2050. Okay, Scott, thanks for spending time with us. Anything else you want to touch on before we go? No, it's just been a good start to the year. Great to have some new council members in Heber. Um, the discussions we're having are very informative, constructive. Uh, you know, any feedback is always welcome. You know, please get, feel free, those who are listening, Heber City residents, please feel free to reach out and give us feedback. Uh, that's how we learn and grow. Okay, Scott Peterson from the Heber City Council, thanks for joining us. I'm sorry, Scott Phillips, I apologize. We'll be right back after oh, no this. Problem. Coming up this Monday on Mountain Money, we're going to have University of Economics professor Marshall Steinbaum. He's going to delve into the proposed Kroger and Albertsons merger, obviously a couple of major grocery store chains. It's currently under review by the Federal Trade Commission and antitrust, state antitrust enforcers. Uh, Steinbaum has written about this from, a, from an academic perspective. He is an antitrust professor. Then we're going to be speaking with Richard Rushfield. He's the editorial director and chief columnist for The Ankler. It covers that he's going to talk about the tactics and amounts that studios and producers spend to campaign uh, for the films to capture an, uh, an Academy Award. You know, if you've ever been in Los Angeles during this time of year, there are billboards everywhere for your consideration as the various film studios seek to try to capture Academy Awards. We're finally going to finish by exploring the comprehensive services of High Top HR with owner Sharon Salmon. All this and more on Mountain Money, Monday morning at 9, only here on KPCW.